This is The Stateless Man for the pursuit of individual liberty beyond arbitrary borders, oppressive governments, and myths of national obligations. If you value liberty and are willing to migrate and vote with your feet, you've come to the right place. Welcome to another episode of The Stateless Man. This is your host, Fergus Hodgson, broadcasting live from Raleigh, North Carolina. And I'm joined again by Rachel Mills. It's a pleasure. It's my pleasure. I am just along for the ride, folks. Have a great time. Yeah, we, we are pursuing liberty beyond borders, and that is international living, financial independence, and personal sovereignty. And this show is sponsored by AMTG Solutions. That's amtgs.com for digital media and web development. And we're on the jam-packed show today. Uh, we're going to have Mikhail Sebastian, the planned guest for la- the first segment of last week. There was a misunderstanding with time, and we're looking to have him on the first hour, first half hour today. Uh, we've got lots of, lots of other interesting guests. After that, we've got uh, Jim Bramman, a friend of mine who actually is from here in uh, the Triangle area of North Carolina, but who's now living down in Ecuador in the Valley of Longevity, and he'll give us an update on what is going on down there. We're going to have Zachary Carceres, or Carceres, I'm not sure how one pronounced that. We're going to have to ask him when he gets on, but he's the editor for Radical Social Entrepreneurs and has written a couple of really fascinating articles, one about why the millennials or our generation are so ironic or you could say anti-reality and because apparently we think we're getting screwed, which is probably the truth. And then finally we've got... Very much the truth. Yeah, I mean, when you you actually look at the trend in terms of wealth, proportion proportion of wealth or income, Demographically, the elderly in, in the United States in particular are just so much wealthier than the young people, relatively speaking. Yeah. The, the ratio has gotten way out of hand. And actually, I'll, I'll bring up the stat on that during the break because I wrote a newsletter on that topic. And then finally, we're going to have Dana Martin, who is the, the author of the book Radical Unschooling. And if we get time, we'll also examine her other book, which is Sexy Birth, which is uh, not really my area of specialty, but... <laughs> Rachel has her own experiences <laughs> and opinions on sexy birth. <laughs> yeah, but Rachel has been through this this process before a couple of times. Birth, and, that is. Yeah, and so... It wasn't sexy. <laughs> well, yeah, that was... No uh, comment on the conception, but the birth part was not sexy. <laughs> yeah, sexy doesn't sound like an apt adjective, but she is going to persuade us, I guess, on that matter. Yeah, oh so... We've just, I've discussed Mikhail Sebastian a bunch of times on this show, basically because I see him as the example of the outcome of closed borders and in, a, in a unequal treatment based upon whether someone has a nationality or not and, or just what, what, what the nationality is of someone. If someone does not have any, then you are something out of luck. Anyway, so, so, <laughs> <laughs> it, so I don't know what we can say on this network. I better clue that in with, uh, the, yeah, yeah. So anyway, oh, we can say whatever we want. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but we're gonna have we've got Mikhail on to explain what his story because it is a fascinating story, which ended up with him stuck in American Samoa for more than a year, and he's just got back to the United States after dealing with more paperwork than I want to deal with in my life. I hate paperwork. So Mikhail, I know it's been a, it's been a, a few a long time we've been in correspondence, and I only got out an article which referred to you just last week about citizenship and the Citizenship Union and Nativism. I'm not sure whether you've had a chance to read that one, but I'm glad to have you on so we can uh, share your story in more detail. Thank you. Right, Mikhail. So why don't you just explain to people a little bit of the context. How does one become 
uh, stateless in, in your term and that, and that having no nationality because I, I've read about it, but you can explain it better than I can. Just give people a little bit of a sense for your background. Well, um, you cannot become stateless by choice. And uh, most stateless people in the United States are those of, uh, from the countries that used to exist. And at the end, uh, those countries collapsed and became uh, completely new independent countries, like former Soviet Union and uh, former but, Yugoslavia. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't become it by choice. Why can you not just renounce citizenship if you just have citizenship in one country, go to another country, and then renounce citizenship when you're in that other country? Well, renunciation of citizenship is a completely different story, and that's, that's something you're trying to do on your own, and you're willingly, knowingly trying to uh, renounce your citizenship either to become stateless or if you have another citizenship, you're protected by another government. Stateless people who used to be citizens of Soviet Union and um, ex-Yugoslavia, and they found themselves in the United States, and basically they became stateless because um, according to the new uh, rules and regulations of uh, a newly established independent republics of former USSR and Yugoslavia, they're not considered you to be a their national or citizen. So basically, you're not protected by any government. You are stateless and wanted and visible and recognized person stuck in the United States, where also United States violate your human rights, uh, basically, because we don't have statelessness law and we don't protect stateless people. Why do the government officials in those countries reject the citizenship requests of people who are born there? Um, well, in... In, because citizenship and immigration law changed after they gained independence from former Soviet Union, and some of them established the rules that you should have resided on their territory uh, by a particular year uh, when they became independent, and uh, so to meet residency requirements. And if you've never been there after they gained gain independence and you've been somewhere elsewhere, and then you basically lost your rights to become a citizen. Um, other uh, countries, in particular, like in my case, where I was born, it was Azerbaijan, Soviet Socialist Republic, now it's an independent country of Azerbaijan. They uh, basically don't recognize me by the principles of their new uh, immigration and citizenship law, but the uh, main political, political reason that why they don't want to uh, grant me citizenship, which I know perfectly why. Of course, they're not gonna t- they're not gonna tell me to my face or in written because I'm Armenian and I was born there. And during the 1980s, Armenian. I mean, I, I, what difference does that well, make? I, well, I am ethnic Armenian. During 1988-89, at the time of the Soviet Union, there was a war uh, broke up in uh, Azerbaijan between Armenia and Azerbaijan over small disputed territory that Armenia claims to be its own. Azerbaijan claims it was their own. So it, uh, the war was really bad. A lot of people were killed, tortured, uh, pregnant women, were, um, their stomach was cut, and a lot of young girls were raped. So um, Azerbaijan, since it's a Muslim-dominated country, Armenians are Christians, so it was a lot of tensions going on. Until now, the problem is not resolved, and because of the political situation, there is this discrimination goes on. Since you're Armenian, we're not going to give you citizenship, even if you were born in Azerbaijan during the Soviet Union. So that's what how it goes. So the, the, yeah, yes, the, Armeni- yeah. the Armenian government, they will not give citizenship either. Well, 
Armenian government cannot give me citizenship because I didn't leave. Uh, I never lived in Armenia. I never studied. Never been registered there uh, illegally during the Soviet Union or after Soviet Union. So basically, by the law, you. Oh, just hold, hold that thought. We, we have to go to the break. Stay with us, folks. This is the Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network. Sit back and relax. You are tuned into the Overseas Radio Network. Your website is a major doorway to reach new clients. A dynamic web presence will generate you more leads and business. AMTG Solutions offers premium web design and digital media services for today's small businesses and entrepreneurs. Visit our website at amtgs.com. Or email Tony at info at amtgs.com and let's get the ball rolling. This is this is the stateless man uh, with Fergus Hodgson and Rachel Mills, and we're speaking with Mikhail Sebastian, a uh, man stateless and that he has no nationality at all. And the reason why I brought him on is that he is. An example of what happens when we impose such laws upon people based upon their nationality. We discriminate people based upon that on that notion. Now he's just just describing how this happened. That he was caught up, you could say, in the mess in the aftermath of the breakup of the Soviet Union, and that led him to basically have no yeah no nationality. The two countries, Armenia and Azerbaijan, would not grant him citizenship. And I'm not sure how he ended up in the United States, uh, but they didn't really have anywhere to deport him to. And he was, he's been traveling throughout the United States territories, including Guam, Puerto Rico, and American Samoa. But basically, he got into some trouble in American Samoa. And, Mikhail, if you want to pick up the story at that point, I read that you went to Western Samoa, or just Samoa proper. How did you get there, and then how did that create difficulties for you? Well, when I uh, traveled to American Samoa, and um, I didn't... Uh, realized at the time that East uh, Western side is an independent nation, and I just thought that uh, Eastern and Western, they're all part of the United States. And local people in American Samoa don't call other Samoa as independent state. They just call Western part or just Samoa. Mm. They said that if you want to enjoy and see a better place, you just better go to the western part of the Samoa because it's much prettier than American Samoa. Okay. So that's why how I end up in Western Samoa. And um, but <clears throat> United. And there, but, but but there are no, and there are no customs requirements or anything like that when you go to Western Samoa. Well, it was custom requirements when I landed there. You have to go through immigration, which I was not aware of. And when I was buying ticket on Polynesian Airlines, Polynesian oh, so you, Airlines you, 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 fl- you flew to Western Samoa from American Samoa? Yeah, because you have to fly. It's just the ocean separates two islands between it. I know, but there's no ferry, so it actually is a flight. Okay. Well, there is a ferry, but I took the flight, and then Polynesian Airlines didn't ask me for my passport or any documents. They just asked me verbally, tell them what my first name and last name and how to spell it, and they issued me electronic tickets. Mm, okay. And when I arrived in Western Samoa, and I figured out that I have to go through immigration customs, and that's what I figured out there was something wrong. And when I told the immigration officer that I, I already passed immigration in American Samoa, another side, and then he told me, he was like, well, the other side belongs to the U.S. We are a completely independent nation. Mm. Wow. How did you get back to American Samoa then? 
And I was the same way. I just flew back, <laughs> flew back without problem. But you see, Fergus, United States um, government's first position was that they said that basically I self-deported myself by leaving American Samoa, going to other Samoa. Yeah. But if you're going to look at the... Uh, but then, but then uh, yeah, but I don't understand how you got into American Samoa the second time around. Well, they just they just let me in, and when I arrived back to American Samoa, the guy just uh, looked at my passport. I guess I've been already in the system. They just mm. put the stamp that I was transiting back to the U.S., and then Hawaiian Airlines just stopped boarding me on the flight. They said that you not allowed to return back because the Department of Homeland Security said that they're not to allow you to get on that flight. And basically that's it. And the position of the U.S. government was like I self-deported myself when I entered Western Samoa, but it was completely wrong. The, when I the, I self-deported myself basically by entering American Samoa because flight between Honolulu and Pango Pango, American Samoa, considered as international flight. And Hawaiian Airlines misinformed me. They said it's domestic flight. It's like flying between New York and California, which is absurd. It's not true. Because mm. when you leave American Samoa, you arrive to Hawaii. Hawaii is your first port of entry into the United States, and you have to clear U.S. customs and immigration. So it's not like So basically, I self-deported myself by entering American Samoa. Western Samoa came to the picture later on when they saw the stamp in my world passport that I mm. entered there. And that's when they switched the position. They said that I deported myself by uh, entering Western Samoa. American Samoa government was arguing with them, saying that we don't care where he went either to uh, Mozambique or Zimbabwe. He came back to the U.S. and he's in the U.S. territory. So basically he has to go back to the U.S. mainland. But Department of Homeland Security position was since you guys accepted him back from Western Samoa, so he's your responsibility. You deal with him. Wow. <laughs> what, yeah, what do you have to say to people then? I mean, how, I mean, what is the road, road, what is the future sort of for, for people in your position now? Because it just seems like it, there's a kind of, how come, there's almost a faceless, uh, and cold side of these laws that you are running up against. And is this, is this changing? What's the prospect for people like you? Um, well, Fergus, you know what? Uh, first of all, I want to say statelessness. It's a um, crime against humanity. Uh, nobody should be deprived from nationality or citizenship. And people, those stateless, estimated 4,000 stateless people, but we don't know exact figure in the U.S. We okay. found ourselves in the U.S. stateless not by our fault, because our former countries cease to exist and don't recognize us as citizens. But we mm-hmm. live in the United States as the host country. And we are not criminals. We live here, we pay taxes, we study, we establish life. So U.S. basically became our home. And um, in the situation of the stateless people like that, when nobody recognizes you, and there is a very important instrument uh, dealing with stateless people. It's United Nations 1951 Convention relating to the status of stateless persons and 1964 UN Convention related to the reduction of statelessness. Most European countries signed those conventions, and they protect stateless people. United States never became a signatory member of this convention, and they just, United States basically just left fingerprints on all those conventions, and they just left. Why don't, why don't, Mikhail, people in your situation, though, don't they just look to t- take up fake names or take up someone else's identity to try and get around this? 
Well, because you see, I mean, you basic, basically you cannot get any identity, any travel document, because U.S. doesn't have law protecting status people. So the only travel document basically you can get if somebody wouldn't know the whole story, if it like happened to me, it's a world passport, which is issued by World Service Authority in Washington, D.C., basically to stateless people. But this passport technically not recognized as a legal passport by the Department of State. So basically you cannot. Uh, you can leave maybe U.S. to go somewhere else, but you won't be able to come back because uh, it's, they consider it as a fantasy passport. And right now I'm trying to work with the UNHCR because they helped me a lot to, uh, in my case to bring me back. And thanks also to CNN um, anchor Christiana Manapur when she aired my story. I'm trying to bring, bring attention to the Congress about stateless people. When we talk about comprehensive immigration reform, stateless that people should be included there. Otherwise, it's not going to be comprehensive immigration reform. And we need to find a mechanism and regulation to find a way how to legalize those stateless people who've been living here for over a decade, uh, provide them uh, green card, permanent residency status, and finally, in, uh, later on, uh, pass to become uh, citizens of the United States. And this gap is missing in our immigration reform. And we were neglected by U.S. government for so long because U.S. used to claim before that uh, the United States is the only country in the world that not, doesn't contribute to the issue of statelessness, which is completely absurd because we have stateless people here. We don't provide any protection to them. We violate their human rights uh, according to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the United States is a party of. And um, we never became signatory member remember, of conventions. And plus, we also allow American citizens voluntarily renounce citizenship, even if it's uh, going to end up being you as a stateless person if you don't have any other citizenship. Right. Well, Mikhail, I mean, I, I asked that question basically because... One of the themes of the show is that we don't really wait around for laws to change. We try and find ways around them. But I would like to see that happen, uh, and I'm not sure how one gets by. I'm going to think about this more. We, we have to go to the to the bottom, the break at the bottom of the hour, but I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story. And like I said, I, I, I will repost my article from the Future Freedom Foundation on this topic, uh, which mentions your story. Okay, so thanks again for coming on The Stateless Man. Thank you so much, sir. Thanks. Right on. Okay, folks. Yeah, after the break, we're going to be having Jim Bramman on, uh, who's down in Ecuador in the uh, Valley of Longevity. And uh, so let, let's let's take let's go to that one. This is the Stateless Man on Overseas Radio Network. You're tuned in to OverseasRadio.com. Your online radio resource about life abroad. Welcome back to the Sables Man. This is your host, Fergus Hodgson. Uh, Join me, Rachel Mills. Hello. And we just uh, got uh, done round talking with Mikhail Sebastian about what happens to people who don't have any nationality. And it's actually a good good thing I have someone like him on to clarify that. The sailor's man does not mean throwing your passport in the river or anything like that. I don't recommend uh, renunci- renouncing all citizenships or anything of that nature. It's really a, a different mentality of basically letting go of obligations or loyalties to nationality. His story beyond. actually reminds me of a Tom Hanks movie called The Terminal. Yeah, yeah. I've got to see that one sometime, actually. Yeah, basically what happens in that movie is 
Tom Hanks plays a character that is caught in an airport, um, the Paris airport? I forget which airport. Um, while his country basically undergoes a revolution and, and is it JFK? JFK. <laughs> Um, that was the producer his, helping us out. His country disappears <laughs> while he's at the airport yeah. and he's not able to leave because he doesn't have the proper documentation anymore. Yeah. He no longer has a valid passport. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a scary situation if, if it's not one that you have chosen. There, there's a lot of people I know would trade places with this guy, but to be To live in, to live in JFK airport all the time? <laughs> yeah. No, to, to, to be stateless and, and oh, to, to have no be, nationality. Yeah, to not be subject to the the laws yeah, or clause of any government. Well, but to 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 be forced into that situation is really frightening. I can imagine. Yeah, you can renounce citizenship. Just the problem is, yeah, you can't get on a plane. Yeah. Yeah. So, or cross boat. any borders. A boat might work. You could get on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> Swim for it. If yeah, I mean, if uh, you want to sail all the way across the Atlantic. Right. I mean, uh, it just, it just frustrates me a little bit. Basically, I just want, I just want to use Mikhail as the example to say that if you support this discrimination by base, based on nationality, this is the outcome. And he is facing it severely because even the country where he was born will not acknowledge him or give him any nationality or yes. citizenship. So he is just literally fallen through the cracks of every bureaucratic. Yeah, it, all, it just shows to all this talk about trying to help people from these government agencies. Well, when there's a, Purely innocent man, they don't care, right? It's, yeah. it's just, it, it's very revealing as to the nature of government bureaucracy. But I want to sort of switch gears a little bit. Uh, we have a, a man who I met, whom I met here in North Carolina in Raleigh at the Tri Liberty Meetup Group. And that was actually when I was one of the guest speakers discussing, you know, how I find, found a different way of thinking in the United States and what that means for people here. He, Caught my attention, I guess, because he was more of the Occupy Wall Street leaning member of that group. I don't know if I want to put that name out there, but I, I said something a bit demeaning about Occupy Wall Street, and I think he <laughs> questioned me about that. But they're not all bad. No, no, they're not. I guess I was questioning the, the whole tactic of just sitting there and doing nothing. I thought that not was... Not having, having any goals. <laughs> kind of Well, I just... I guess I'm... much in, in Raleigh, people just sat there with signs for, I'm thinking, months. And I was thinking, are you going to get on with your life or just sit there? Well, you know. Yeah, and people would ask them, well, what is it that you want? And they're, they couldn't come up with an answer. So that's interesting. Right, okay. Well, I'm going to – Jim has just got back in touch. We're going to try and reconnect him uh, with, this, with this call. Uh, I've just let the producer know his username. But, yeah, so Jim, he is now down in the Valley of Longevity in Ecuador, in southern Ecuador. It's a small town, and I posted this through – is it really called that in English, or is it no? No, that's just the name. The Spanish the name is Vilcabamba in Ecuador. Vilcabamba, yeah. And huh. the the name Val- the Valley of Longevity is just kind of like a term which people have given to the area because people do actually live really long there. Oh, we uh, we uh, they live to be really old. Yes, so it's that that actually is true. Let me try and get this guy on here. Like how um, old? Hundred and twenty. Uh, there there there's talk about older than that actually. What? And, um, I don't want to live to be 120. I don't think 120 would look very good on me. I would quite like to, but the deal <laughs> is that um, I, I'm really concerned about mortality, that years go by so quickly. Yeah. And the, the deal is that they've had a hard time confirming these 
how can I describe it? These accounts of people being very old because the documentation is not there. Sure. Hello, hello. Hey, hello? Jim, we, we've got we've got our man on. So, all right. We're just, uh, having a few technical technical difficulties there, but I'm really pleased to have you on. And we, I think I hear a bit of background noise. I don't know whether you have a, a set of headphones you can use, but just uh, anything we can do to keep that clean. Jim, I was just I was just explaining that. We we met at a Tri Liberty meetup group here in Raleigh, and right. I just I just noticed recently that you were down in Vilcabamba in Ecuador, right? And I, I I started reading your blog about it, just to get a bit of sense of why you'd gone gone down there, and and you work you know how that relates to your work as a chiropractor. Do you want to explain to people you know what was the last straw that made you say, look, I'm just going to pack my bags and get on down there with my wife? Well. <laughs> The last straw isn't nearly as interesting as all the straws required to make the last straw the last straw, if you know what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> sure. Uh, but the, the, la- the actual last straw was the diagnosis of cancer for my wife. Okay. Uh, and I so guess sorry. the straw. Before- yeah, well, it, it's not that advanced, but uh, the problem for us is that we are so naturally oriented uh, and additionally, quite poor that we can't afford uh, healthy food. You know, anti-cancer food is is expensive in the states, and down here it grows in the front yard. So that's that was the main the main reason we decided. Okay, we just got to do this. Uh, and her dad is ninety, and he has a pension. So I mean, we had to bring him. We wanted to bring him because we refused to put him in an old folks' home just because he's old, and we have our own more important lives to live. So. It's a pretty complex situation, but we feel like this was really the right thing to do. How long have you been down there now? It's only been about four months, but gotcha. uh, yeah, we're feeling um, you know pretty much in a routine now with all the uh, you know the therapies for Debbie with different cancer uh, things she's doing. It's kind of a rotating shotgun that she uses to fight this. And uh, uh, how's so she doing? She's doing real well. She's only stage two, uh, early stage two, and she. Ironically, she had worked in cancer, well, not cancer clinics, but alternative medical clinics for like 30 years uh, and has already been doing lots and lots of good diet stuff. But uh, it's pretty heavy in her family. Her mom got it the same year she got it. She's 58. Mm. So we try not to feel too, uh, uh, you know, ashamed of that or whatever you want to say that uh, after all that work. But we found out that, uh, you know, cancer is, no matter how magical your remedy is, there's, there's, there's also an emotional and spiritual, whatever you want to call it, intangible component that uh, you can't buy in the pill or even, even eat as a plant. So she's working through a lot of things and doing a, a tremendous job. I'm so proud of her. Um, she's really, uh, really, she's happier now than she's ever been here. So we're, we're glad we're here. That's great, mate. And, and, I noted in the introduction and in my newsletter that this is this area of Ecuador is known as the Valley of Longevity. How long do people live in the Valley of Longevity? Well, that's that's good. If you if you Google up on Wikipedia Vilcabamba, what you're going to get is that maybe not so long. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a know, myth. Exaggerating age is a is is a pretty easy thing to do in their culture here, and they've done according to Wikipedia they've done some some pretty good studies of these people. What they did find to in the favor of the Longevity Valley is that if you make it to 80 or 90 or perhaps even 100, you're going to be a lot healthier moving around. You know, you, you're alive until you die here, which is, you know, that's, that's the way it was for millennia, right? Uh, now we're sure. getting used to all this uh, 
Well, of course, I'm in a wheelchair and diabetic and all that. I'm 65. What did you expect? Right. You know. <laughs> so. so, so maybe they lie about their age a little bit or exaggerate, much in the way that American women do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, well, we reverse. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. And I, I was saying the video. I noted that my favorite part of Vilcabamba is the way that you can still ride a horse around town, or people just do. So that shows you how kind of like uh, engaged with the environment people are. But we have to go to a short break. Uh, stay with us. This is The Stateless Man on Embassy's Radio Network. Sit back and relax. You are tuned into the Overseas Radio Network. Welcome back to The Stateless Man, pursuing liberty beyond borders. We are with Jim Braman, who is a formerly of North Carolina. Now he's down in Vilcabamba in Ecuador. Uh, he was explaining his justification for going down there. And over the, during the break, we were chatting a bit about you know what life is really like and how it's not all roses. Do you want to expand upon, you know you could say, like a more frank view of life in Ecuador, as apart from like maybe the sales pitches that one might get? Yeah. Well, uh, I'll try not to be uh, too frank because there's a lot of good here. Um, some of the videos, you know, you look at the videos of Ecuador, and if you're a tourist, you're taking pictures, you're going to take pictures of the prettiest stuff you see. Uh, you know, and they portray this little valley of longevity as, you know, it's tranquil, it's lush and green. Uh, it's not tranquil, it's not lush and green, and it's hardly a little mountain village. Whoa, whoa, slow down. <laughs> wow, really? Are you serious that it's not um, tranquil? I'm serious. It's the, the town of, here's the deal. We got a valley. We got four valleys coming into a confluence of a large valley where the town is laid out. It's about uh, seven by six blocks of a grid. Okay. Yeah. It's got probably 1,000 to 1,500 people in it. About a third of all the buildings are under reconstruction. The valleys have about three or four thousand more people going up into the hills, and the roads are full of you know traffic. These diesel taxis are running everywhere. Hmm. Uh, you've got the national anthem, which is roosters crowing, taxis, and fireworks. They love fireworks year round here. They blow them off in the middle of the day, whenever, whatever. Police don't care. But so it's roosters, hard. <laughs> roosters, roosters are nice. Oh yeah, yeah people people think that roosters just crow in the morning, but I tell you, I grew up on a farm and they crow all day long. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, so you have tranquility at your fingertips, but if you're living in the town of uh, Vilcabamba, uh, the park, the little square in the center, yeah, that's really cool. You can ignore the taxis and all the diesel because it's a really, really beautiful little park, and you see it in all the videos. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of good here, but there's there's a lot of construction. People are just swarming here. The the visa restrictions are I won't say they're getting tighter, but they're they're changing so fast that people. So, get, so down, pe people are swimming to Vilcabamba or Ecuador. I would say Vilcabamba in Ecuador in Whoa. general, but particularly Vilcabamba because it's got so much press. The internet and you can't get ahead of the internet. You can't be smart and sneaky enough to find a place that's really cool that someone else hasn't already found. So they're coming here, and mm. there's a lot of them coming here. And uh, the good thing about that, Fergus, is that if you don't know the language, as neither of none of us do, you so. have enough expats here to, you know, there's Spanish classes galore. There's, you know, three or four different people giving Spanish classes. You've got the expats to fall back on. It's a, it's a nice community feel with, with the mm. expats. 
Yes. So you can integrate and you can also, you know, find the emotional rest you need for being in a brand new place. So it's a very attractive place to be uh, if you want to learn Spanish and the culture, uh, regardless of my negative remarks I made earlier. Right. Well, I'll say, too, one of my concerns had has been, uh, I guess, what you kind of touched upon a little bit, but I spent most of my time in Quito, Ecuador, and it's just a very congested and dirty city. Absolutely. And after you've been there a while, you forget. But I just remember when I went back after a year away, I was going, whoa. I, I just, uh, I guess, I, like, my eyes had kind of reacclimatized to life here in Raleigh, which is, you know, one of the cleanest cities around, I guess. But yeah. so... I question, caution people when we, when we say pristine, as you know, yes, out of the city it's pristine, but the cities themselves tend to be actually kind of dirty. And Guayaquil, I thought, was even worse. But yeah, Guayaquil is the worst in in the country. At two million people uh, at a hot and humid uh, altitude, we're at five thousand uh, two hundred feet, same as Denver here. You sure. can't get a better. And the one thing, the strongest point for Vilcabamba is the climate is just like Hawaii. It hardly ever goes up and down. Hawaii minus five degrees, you know, it's, it's just okay. really nice. Uh, so that's good. Uh, one of the things is we have an awful lot of expats coming here for a more naturalistic lifestyle. And the odd thing is that uh, it's difficult to get certain things here if you're really into that scene. And you can get, obviously, uh, organic produce is cheap. Bananas are a nickel a piece here. And, uh, you know, it's just very, very nice for that. But it can be difficult to get... Uh, certain nutraceuticals or other products uh, you have to order, you know, and it's difficult with shipping to mm. Ecuador, a lot of re regulation. So there's many things to consider. Uh, if you're coming here, you know, even just for that reason, you may not get exactly what you want without a little bit of trouble. Um, so, but it's good. There's, um, you know, lots of uh, uh, good places to eat. There's natural restaurants here. Uh, it is a good place to heal. There are many, many kinds of healers, uh, you know, both Eastern and, and Western. We have a uh, alternative medical doctor who went to a regular medical school and majored in, I guess, alternatives uh, in Bogota, I think, was where she went. She's yeah. right around the corner. It's $15 a visit. It's $40 for IV treatments. And she writes prescriptions for whatever you need. And that's, that's really sweet. Uh, we like that. So. And that's not a copay. That's the total cost? <laughs> yeah, that's just upfront cash, cash uh, payment? Yeah, per visit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah wow. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Well, one thing you mentioned in your newsletter how in order to build a good rapport with locals, you now give free chiropractic treatment? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sometimes. Think, yeah, I, I do it uh, in the public for free. Um, it's just something that uh, I would say God uh, put on my heart to do that. I've been really blessed in my life in so many ways, and I haven't done chiropractic in a number of years for other reasons. So I got my old portable table out, brought it along, and said, well, let's see what happens. Mm. And I went there, and people here have never had that. I'm the only one in town, and there's only about 20 in the country. Uh, and there's probably a dozen massage therapists, but you know, in five minutes uh, I can do perhaps what you can get maybe in half of a whole massage treatment by just doing the adjustment to the bones, and they mm. love it. There's, there's so much stress with the construction going on, with the hardworking farmers, and they line up in the square. I've got a picture of it on my blog there. And they just, it's, like, it's like theater for some of them, and it's like being in a, in a kind hospital for others. Uh, so I thoroughly enjoy once a week doing a couple hours of treatments on about 30 or 40 people. The police even, uh, you know, at first they were like, okay, you know, what are you charging here? Where's your permit? Uh, <laughs> they, 
And then they took me down to the station and said, okay, in this room here, open the table, all of us now. And so, uh, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I'm really having a lot of fun. It's the highlight of my week to do this free care, and I, I do it in my house for like 15 bucks, which is the going rate for adjustments down here. Um, so I'm having a lot of fun. You know, I don't need the money uh, that much uh, with, as long as my father-in-law is alive. I mean, we have a little bit to get by on there. But uh, anyway, yeah, that's a fun thing. It's a lot of good stories with that. And um, so, yeah, that's all good. Right. And if you don't mind sharing, how, what kind of visa is available to someone who's not necessarily applying for a professional permit? I mean, are you going to? Are you? I assume you're sort of still working through that process. Yeah, well, I mean, I, that's probably why I'm doing it for free, although I would probably do it anyway for free because these people are, are dirt poor and the massage people want, you know, 30, 40 bucks for their care. But um, the visa you get here just from having a passport is 90 days. Mm. Um, you can uh, apply for a six-month extension of that for, I think, a couple hundred dollars, $230, which is not not terribly complicated if your paperwork is, is done correctly. When you go to apply for residency... Uh, it does get a little more difficult depending if you're doing uh, certain kinds. The easy one is the $25,000 CD or $25,000 land purchase. It may not sound easy, but <laughs> that just tells you how hard the other ones are. Um, so that's kind of straightforward. You need to probably have an attorney or there's many advisors now, people you pay who are bilingual, who live in the immigration office areas and just help people. So there's a whole other uh, genre of professionals uh, forming around the, the lawyer concept thing. Right. Uh, and do you, do you see many people picking up and going home? Well, there's nobody here I know that just got frustrated with the things I mentioned and said, you know, this is crap. I'm going, you know, here, there, or yon. It, it's, you know, unfortunately in our world, there, there are no paradises left that the man doesn't have his hand on, you know, the corporations and the systems and all that. Maybe you know of some. And sure. I'll, no, I mean, I, I agree. I, I will say, too, that you've got to kind of pick your poison to some degree, that there really is no haven to just flee to that's out of the, out of the reach of, you could say, I'm not sure whether you want to call it the surveillance state, but basically the arm, arm of a, a more expansive government. Yeah, yeah, the world is large, and with the Internet and with uh, the means. So, so basically, um, yeah, people aren't, they come to visit, and that's very wise. Don't come and move like we did. We had, you know, Debbie had cancer. We had to move. No visit. Boom, we're here, right? Whoa. Uh, most yeah. people, yeah, it's traumatic. Most people that come here for the 90-day thing, visit around Ecuador, go home, think about it. They either come or they don't come. If they come, they're not leaving saying, oh, my gosh, I had no idea there was roosters next door. You know I mean? It, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it, it's, yeah, people, people like, that's why it's growing. I mean, it, all these old buildings are a hundred year old, uh, you know, sand dirt bag type buildings. It's this funny kind of, uh, cement mud they use, which is actually very good. And they're all falling apart and they're reconstructing everything everywhere. Um, so it's growing, uh, quite a lot. I think the next Ecuador, uh, might be Peru. Peru gets a bad rap because it's poor and whatever other, general bad rap Peru. It's, it's yeah. also the, the, the new home for the drug trade. I think it's overtaken Colombia in terms of uh, cocaine production. But, I didn't I mean, know that, yeah. yeah. Uh, but still, it's a, it's a much, much larger country. Uh, they're much less restrictive on visas, and including the six-month extension visa. Um, mm. It's easier to get in out of Peru than it is in Ecuador these days. So I oh. think people may start going. It's not as tropical. You get down to the bottom of Peru, and you're in a regular four-season place. Right. Well, actually, yeah, I, I want to speak to that. We, we've, we are approaching the next break. So, Jim, I'll just say uh, thanks for your time, mate, and I, I look forward to reading more of your blog and just seeing your updates. 
uh, best of luck with your you know new home in Ecuador. All right, thanks. Right on. I'll just say that in the south of Peru, I've spent a lot of time down there. I, I bust all the way from uh, you know Lima right down to Santiago, and it is just desert. And it, there, there was just ocean leading up to to desert. But uh, yeah, so we we actually have to have to go to the next one. I'm, I'm really tight. But I'll just say we have Zachary Casares on next to discuss his two articles uh, through Radical Social Entrepreneurs. So stay with us. This is The Stateless Man on Overseas Radio Network. From China's Great Wall to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, this is the Overseas Radio Network. Welcome back to The Stateless Man, uh, Pursuing Liberty Beyond Borders. Uh, this show is sponsored by AIMTG Solutions for all your digital media and web development needs. Uh, Tony, the founder of the organization, is a friend of mine, does great work. It's AIMTGS.com. And today I'm joined by the lovely Rachel Mills. She Hello. is former uh, press secretary. What yes. Was press secretary for press Ron- secretary, communications director, however you want to say it, for Congressman Ron Paul. For, for five years until he retired. Five years in D.C. So she has some stories, and Ron Paul is one of the few politicians that I would ever let on this show. Uh, I've tried to avoid them at all costs, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, we had a pretty intense uh, during-the-break conversation with Jim about what's going on with Rafael Correa, the president. And I am now very depressed. Of, of Ecuador, yeah. Basically, his, his, I guess his point, which I echoed or support, is that don't imagine that you can just flee all government tyranny or intrusion. There's no real place to escape to. You've got to uh, just deal with deal with the opportunities that exist and make make best with the opportunities that are available. He and also al- and also that just one good politician is not going to change the whole world or uh, the whole system of incentives that exist. Exactly, and that that's the whole field of public choice economics. That basically the personality does not overwhelm all the incentives at play. Yeah, uh, e- even. Uh, people in positions of power and bureaucrats, they, they may seem to be behaving in an evil way, but I mean, I submit that they are acting rationally under this, this sure, the set incentives, of they incentives face. that, that they are right. acting under. It, you have to, you have to examine that to understand their behavior. Sure. Maybe they are evil, but <laughs> maybe they're, you know, they, they probably feel like they're just doing their job. Well, it, I mean, we were discussing this. I'm trying to think when I was, I had an interview on Saturday night on Traces of Reality Radio. And often I think just blaming politicians is too easy. You've got to realize that their power yes. is derived from your dependency or the, your willingness to basically utilize them. Uh, that can be in a variety of forms. Because there's more of us than there are of them. Far more. And the, the, the particular issue that Jim was talking about during the break too is the way that he believes that someone like Correa is, uh, afraid that his life is in danger and if people want to consider that likelihood more there's a, a wonderful book on the matter called confessions of an economic hitman and it was number 11 it just missed out on the top 10 of my list that's on the on the page today the statelessman.com uh, but I, I did notice that the confessions of an economic hitman describes a lot of the work that goes on with developing nations like ecuador including assassinations that have occurred but i want to uh, stay on a downer too long. <laughs> um, we've got we've got a, a, a guest that I've been wanting to get on for a while. Actually, his name is Zachary Casares. Casares. I need to get him to tell me how to pronounce that last name. But he is 
editor of Radical Social Entrepreneurs, and he's also, I think, he's doing some work with the Free Cities Institute down in Guatemala, but I don't, I don't know his role there, and that site's been down for a while, so it's still building. But the two articles which I noted in the newsletter are from Social, uh, Radical Social Entrepreneurs, which is a great uh, website or outlet with uh, lots of good creative, creative ideas. So, Zachary, thanks for coming on The Stateless Man, and I'm really pleased to be able to uh, examine these topics further. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Right on. Now, the first article, which now actually before before we get onto the content, do you mind explaining uh, what exactly is going on with the Free Cities Institute and when they'll be back back up running? Sure. Yeah, um, the Free Cities Institute uh, is still going on, and there's still activities going on. The website has been down for a little while. We wanted to change uh, change a lot about it and really do a, a whole revamping and, you know, get more resources up there so that there was more to offer people. And um, so it's been down for, for a couple of months, and um, it should be up actually quite soon, hopefully within this month. There will also be a conference in June uh, on Free Cities. Uh, that's in the, in the middle of June. We'll be hearing here in Guatemala. So there's lots of stuff going on. Uh, a lot of it has been based around Central America. I've done in, lots of interviews with the press and written op-eds, and we've been in various journals. There's a new piece on basic income guarantees and free cities written by myself and Michael Strong, and this is um, that's in a new Palgrave volume. So there's, there's definitely a lot going on. The website is just down for a little while. Sure. And the website, the, the website that I, I'm interested in uh, mostly lately because it ha- is having content going up that I can uh, play with or get to, to read is Radical Social Entreps, i.e. just short for entrepreneurs, E-N-T-R-E-P-S dot org. And the article which caught my attention is why are millennials so ironic and particularly because most of the, the listeners to the show are millennials that that I think that takes in about 1970 to maybe 1990 or something like that. So a swath of people that we are a part of. Now, what do you mean by that we're so ironic? I mean, I, I mentioned the, the, like the, the popularity of the Onion articles, which are probably the most popular posts that I make on my page. Uh, but I, I assume you're getting to more than just, than just our sort of social media habits. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm not actually sure that millennials are so ironic. And so the title itself is a little tongue-in-cheek because um, what I'm really responding to is that there have been consistently lots of people writing about how ironic millennials are. The the particular Hmm. piece um, was a New York Times piece called How to Live Without Irony. And it's it's this humanities professor just railing against how ironic millennials are and it really kind of it really pushed my buttons in a certain way, and so I wrote this in response. But it, no, it's not just about social media. Although I think the Onion is a great example, it is a great symptom of what much more fundamentally is going on. Mm. Um, you do see things like uh, millennials getting their news from the Onion or from John Stewart, or you, you know you hear things about hipster culture being very ironic, all this kind of stuff. But for me, it's, it's about this fundamental process, a fundamental disconnect between the kind of world that the cultural world that millennials have grown up with and the structure of, uh, especially the American economy, its school system, its political system, the main sort of social institutions that, that, that run the show in the States. I think there's a huge contradiction or, uh, between the really open, very kind of humane, 
almost anti-authoritarian world that a lot of millennials grew up with via things like the Internet and mm. then the, the institutions that they're put through growing up. And I think this leads to, or it's led to, a very large mass of uh, people in the age group that you've described who are not necessarily ironic, but they are very much disenchanted with uh, the main institutions of society. I think this is actually responsible for some of the growth in libertarianism in that uh, age group as well. Okay, well, just, just yeah, we are, we are nearing the breaks. There was a nice, nice, nice round off there. Zach, this is uh, this is the Stateless Man, and we're on the Overseas Radio Network. This is the Stateless Man, and I'm joined by Rachel Mills today. Hello. And we are pleased to be speaking with Zachary Caceres, and he is a, he's an editor with Radical Social Entrepreneurs. And the article which drew my attention to him late recently was why are millennials so ironic? And I guess he was explaining which many of us observe to be true: millennials just to be, I guess, people between let's say twenty and thirty-five, this at twenty and forty maybe. And we uh, we live in this world of enormous choices. And you could say social tolerance in our private lives, but then in terms of the actual law or the political realities, we are very muzzled or constrained economically. And perhaps that's the, he said, the disenchantment, particularly regarding economic opportunity that many people our age have, that people are very indebted with student debts and struggling to find good prospects moving back in with their parents. That's kind of painful to think about, but... So the idea is that we snark so that we don't cry. Basically, got to laugh, better to laugh than cry. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Well, when I was in Louisiana, I heard that saying. You know, it's a laugh to keep from crying because they were discussing how Louisiana has the highest incarceration rate in the world. It's the most in the state, and I think more than one percent of the population is in prison. And I'm thinking this is getting out of hand. That's depressing. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. But anyway, so but people like radical social entrepreneurs are trying to change this. They're trying to break out of the paradigm. I mean, that's the, that's the whole idea. Do you know, I mean, have we, have we par- par- paraphrased your thoughts there, Zach? Absolutely. I think the, the idea of laughing instead of crying is very, very apt in this case. Right. I, I mentioned the fact that just a lack of job prospects and a, enormous burdens of debt. Are there any other, you could say, challenges that, that you can say outside of the economic realm that you, that you have in mind when you write this article? Yeah, I think there's a couple. One is simply, one is, for instance, people getting a little bit disappointed in the performance of uh, the Obama presidency. I think a lot of millennials really, they really bought the idealism that was being sold in Obama's campaign. And so you have this re-engagement with politics and I think a lot of millennials are very disappointed with what has actually happened. And as a result, there's, it's sort of like, oh man, you know, here I thought finally we could redeem this thing, this thing hope, that makes me so change. and that seems so broken. Exactly. And even change that, you can believe in. I love all these slogans. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, even policies like the war on drugs, I mean, it's extremely mm. unpopular with millennials. Yeah. Um, and, but I, the, the economic thing is hit most close to home, but I think it's, it's, it's still even um, more broad than that. School, even aside from student debts, 
people are sold this this fantasy that if you you do your you go to the good high school and you do your homework well, then you go to the good college and then you have a job laid out for you, and it's just not true. And I think it, it undermines not just you know the the personal success of a person, but it actually undermines their sense that the institutions that are around them are legitimate. Yeah, what are people supposed to believe in when you bought into what everybody told you all your life and then it didn't quite work out the way they sort of promised? Mm. Not I mean not not exactly like the world owes you a living, but you know, the the world basically lied to you. Yeah, and and one thing that I touched upon before as we sort of mentioned that we we're going to have you on the show is that the transfer or the wealth disparity between young and old is getting totally out of hand in the United States. So let me just read one quote here. In 1984, reports the Pew Research Center, households headed by people 65 and older had 10 times the wealth of households headed by people under, under 35, which is already a huge disparity. Mm. By 2005, before the Great Recession, the gap had increased to 22 times, and by 2009, it was 47 times. Mm. That means that the people under, under 35 don't have a lot of money. That's, that's for sure. That's to be sure. So that's just an enormous uh, wealth disparity that, in my case, it, it, I mean, particularly if I grew up in the U.S., I'd be even more angry about it, I guess, that these people who are supposedly here helping us have really tricked us and are, are robbing us. Yeah, I, don't know yeah, yeah, I think that, that very much is the, a big, big part of the feeling. I think that's actually part of the reason why um, this article did, it did really well, and I got a lot of really personal, some really angry responses to it. Huh. And I think that, that, that is, uh, that's a lot of the reason why, is because, you know, you just get this, you, you get this sense that all these people are writing articles telling millennials, work harder, you're so spoiled, this is the entitlement generation, you all just don't know what it's like to, to work, all of this stuff. And it's written always by people who are in the the you know the the gap of the forty seven times more wealth you know and, uh, and and I think there's yeah. there's a certain amount of resentment in that you know sure sure I I I'm just boggled even reading back at the statistic I'd forgotten it was so out of control okay well we only have a, couple, a few more minutes to play with now I before I, rather than go to your next article I'd like to explain what radical social entrepreneurs are doing. Your organization. Sure. Well, the the idea um, the idea behind radical social entrepreneurs is that um, that well the, the, the co-founders and I uh, one is uh, education entrepreneur Michael Strong and others a web developer named Joshua Zader and I we all okay. really are we're do-gooders at heart. We really are. Like we we like we go to humanitarian events and hang out with people who are really interested in doing good in the world and interested in charity and all of these things. But the problem is, though, is that a lot of these people do not take seriously the really, really deep and insidious structural constraints that face the poor and that mm. prevent people from doing good in the world. And many of these constraints come from politics. They come from... Uh, the law, they come from the way the education, the education system is structured. So our idea is people are already believing in social entrepreneurship. You can be an entrepreneur with a social mission and do good in the world. Well, what we really need are radical social entrepreneurs who take the same spirit that they, that they bring to social entrepreneurship, but they put it into the areas that are most broken, namely politics, education, law, you know, governance, transparency, th things like this, and really, really strike the root of social problems. Well, one and thing that – I'll, I'll just – if I can interrupt there, I want to just say that one thing about your site that particularly gets my attention is that 
it's not just about, you could say, changing yeah, law or government or politics, whatever. It's about changing our own mentalities too to basically celebrate the entrepreneur and to hold that person up as a role model, which kind of leads into your second article actually about how we need better heroes. So do you want to speak to, speak to that aspect of what your organization does? Absolutely. I think ultimately, you know, people talk a lot about political reform or economic reform. I think personal reform comes first. And if you can learn how to govern yourself, then I think we would have a lot less problems with how to govern ourselves collectively. Uh, That's the true. Thing is that, Amen to that. <laughs> well, uh, it, it actually has been the most popular theme on our website. It really surprised us. And mm. uh, like you said, this other article was about heroes. And even the irony thing, I think, touches on, uh, on heroes in that we don't really have very good heroes in American culture. And I guess maybe even more broadly than that, it was directed towards America. But, I mean, politicians are not very good heroes. Sports no. stars are, they're not very good heroes. Most no. musicians, you know, people, people show, the problem is, is we, we prioritize the excellence in a craft, like being a great football player, being a good political operator, whatever. And I think we need a lot broader definition of what it means to be a good hero, modeling, modeling compassion, modeling wisdom, modeling openness, modeling humility. And these are not exactly traits that you think of when you think of who are in the upper echelons of society and who people aspire to be. They don't, I don't think of those people as really showing the very many of those people as demonstrating those traits very well. So that's no. what we're going to do on RSC. Gotcha. Yeah, well, we are approaching the next break, so... Uh, Zachary, I appreciate you coming on, on the show, and I'll continue to follow your, your website, and I, I, I'm enjoying your work, so just keep that up, okay? Thanks a lot. There's big changes with RSE afoot, so I look forward to talking with you in the future. S- sounds good. Sounds good. Okay, well, I actually want to just make one note. We were discussing beforehand the uh, Freakonomics podcast, yeah, yeah. and in Okay, well, we're getting tight on the break, so we, we need to we need to cut that one short. But I'll just say I, I've got a, a bit of a thought on you could say the culture of people who are in, in power positions. But stay with us. This is the Stateless Man on the Overseas Radio Network. Welcome back to the Stateless Man. Uh, this is your host Fergus Hodgson, and with Rachel, coasting with Rachel Mills. Yo. Today, and we are broadcasting live from Raleigh, North Carolina. You can call in. It's one eight 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 seven four one seven four seven two. We'll be glad to take your calls, uh, particularly as we're going to have a, I guess you could say, a, a distinct guest in the final half hour. And uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to discuss a point he made about you could say the culture at the top or people in positions of power and i mentioned we both have an interest in the freakonomics uh work of i guess following uh stephen levitt and stephen dubner and i've read both of the books freakonomics and super freakonomics and in the second one they have a note about altruism or just honesty and there was a, a very insightful experiment that went on. It wasn't a plant experiment. It was just that a, there was a man who used to sell bagels and donuts on an honor basis where he'd leave them on a, on a floor in a building and people could take them and just leave a dollar or two dollars, whatever it may have been. And the insight which was surprised me, but maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised, was that the people in the higher 
levels of buildings or in the executive parts of the buildings were the least honest. Shocker. <laughs> Is that another shocker to you, Rachel? I guess the cynic in me says that's how you rise to the top. That's Whoa. how you get up there. Is I feel that was I found it a little bit de-inspiring, if I could, if I can put it that way. Well, yeah, that too. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So, which we are looking to get uh, Dana Martin on. She is an expert on radical unschooling. She is just emailed me saying, "Do I call you?" So we're gonna have to get her. We're gonna have to. Arrange that in a second, so I'm just going to have Rachel hold the hold the fort for a second. <laughs> Sorry. What has been your take on today's show? Actually, I mean, is there anything stood stood out for you? And I guess so far. Oh, I've enjoyed all of them. Um, yeah, you said that you said that the Ecuador, the man in Ecuador, got you down a little bit. Oh yeah, I'm so depressed now. <laughs> no, actually, I'm 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 not depressed so much as uh, just. I don't know. He didn't say anything that was too terribly surprising to me as a as a libertarian. It's all kind of stuff that you you know that you gain from cynicism that you naturally acquire from questioning authority. Okay, excellent. Yay. We we do have our guest on. This lady is Dana Martin, and she has just finished a conference on unschooling, which is a term that I'm still getting more acquainted with. Uh, but the conference was Liberty Rocks, uh, exclamation mark. And her books are yeah, Radical Unschooling, A Revolution Has Begun. And the second one is Sexy Birth, what I've described as a contrarian take on childbirth. I'm not sure whether she'd agree with that characterization. But uh, So Dana Martin, I, I know there was a little bit of confusion. I just got your email, uh, but I'm glad we've, we've got you on the line. So thanks for coming on The Stateless Man. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Right, so for the... For those of us who are still getting a sense for this term unschooling, I mean, many people on this network, I, I think, are just skeptical about uh, government education in general and really believe in personal responsibility. It's a it's a network for expats, so people who have already taken the initiative or who are considering taking the initiative in their own lives, so they already have that kind of orientation. But how does unschooling fit into people who just, you could say, believe in greater personal responsibility? Well, I think a lot of people understand the term homeschooling. They realize that they don't want their children in state schools, so they bring them home. But unschooling takes it even one step further with personal freedom and responsibility. We we do not even use a government curriculum, where most homeschoolers, they buy a curriculum and, they, and they, their children are forced or coerced into following the state's curriculum at home, um, which mm. I can appreciate that being a step in the right direction. This lets go of any kind of government control and curriculum altogether, and we use the world as our child's classroom. So our children learn based on their interests, and they have the freedom to pursue what they'd like to learn about. How long has this term unschooling been around? It was coined in the 1970s by John Holt. It was based on, he was watching a commercial about 7-Up, which is a soft drink in the U.S., and it's called the Uncola. And so he took off with that. And really? Is that true, the Uncola? Yes, I'm confused. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I remember that. And he took it so, one step further and said, well, we're, what we're doing is unschooling. And so it was a little tongue-in-cheek, but it really stuck. Um, and mm. un is not necessarily a term to say anti-school. Uh, it's just saying what they what we're not, you know, what people are choosing not to do and not use schools the, at the, all. The alternative, just an alternative exactly. to, right. I My question is, okay, since this has been around from, since from the, the 70s, 70s, from the yeah. 70s um, we how how many kids would you say have uh, gone through this process? Yeah, or? how how many have 
quote unquote, I guess you wouldn't say graduated, but um, how many adults are, are out there that have been through this process and, and has it been successful for them and how would you define success? Well, keep in mind that he asked me about the term unschooling, not the practice of unschooling. So the term unschooling has been around since the 70s. However, the practice has been around since the beginning of mankind. It was before schools even came to be. This is how okay. people learn. Na- it's natural learning. So mm. there are so many unschooled adults that I know that I'm in contact with, hundreds of thousands of people that I work with every day um, and every month that I'm connected with, and some are in Harvard right now. I mean, so it's some people do take the direction of college. I personally believe that college is just one choice. Sure. Of many, many I, choices. I agree. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's, this great, there's this great book called Hacking Your Education, and it's about the whole uncollege movement and how how it's such a business with colleges now who are trying to, you know, make a living off of people thinking they need to go to college to further their education. So um, unschoolers that are educating their children now are looking even that far into the future saying, we don't even have to use colleges for our kids to pursue their interests and learn and grow. So yeah, definitely overrated and yeah, overpriced. Well, that's been a, actually a recurring theme on this show. I wrote a, a recent article uh, it's called Demystifying the Cult of Higher Education because it has become mystical the way people talk about it. You know, if you actually get down to how much you actually learn, and is anyone actually testing the learning, the actual educational value in these, uh, you realize that a lot of it's based based on rhetoric. And there's, as you mentioned, given the the money at at stake, uh, there's a huge incentive to over over overstate the benefits of this process. Mm-hmm. So unschooling, you say, is basically like without a state curriculum or conventional education. I mean, do you want to expand upon expand upon yeah. that more? I mean, it's more than just an educational philosophy, and that's what's so important for people to realize. This is a parenting philosophy, and it's based on re-examining the rights and respect that children have in our culture. So I I don't believe it's just at all to send a child to school against their will, nor do I believe Mm. it's just to punish a child and, and have a lot of rules in the home. So this is really respecting a child's autonomy on a whole new level. It's... um. I facilitate my child's learning, but I'm not the teacher. I don't stand in front of them and pour knowledge into them as the all-knowing authority, but it is my, it's a really hands-on role to be an unschooling parent. It's, it's surely not for the lazy parent because <laughs> I have four children and I'm facilitating their learning throughout the days and weeks, meaning whatever they're interested in, I bring as much into their lives as possible to learn and grow from based on that interest. However, we don't live life broken down into subjects at all. So I, I never say ever, this is math, this is English, this is science. That's that's complete brainwashing on the, from the school system to even think that you have to view things like that. We, we just live life, and our kids learn so much as a side effect of just pursuing their interests and goals in life and passions. So it really is a matter of the parent is the one that has to do all the work when they want to pursue mm. this type of life because you, there's so much de-schooling or unbrainwashing that has to take place to to val you know to see real value in everything your child does and see learning everywhere that they're how old are your kids it. yeah how, how old are your children my youngest is five I have a five year old son an eight year old daughter an eleven year old daughter and a fourteen year old son okay well, and what do they want to do when they grow up do they are, if they are, <laughs> are they ever going exactly. to grow up. I love that question because this is really a present-based philosophy where um, mainstream parenting and and education is really based on the future, where we're always telling children that someday you'll finally be able to be free and someday you can be something in life, where my my children are artists now. They're they're entrepreneurs. They have 
My children have had their own businesses since they were as young as four. My daughter Tiffany, who's 11, has a pet-sitting business and makes more money than most adults I know. So <laughs> this is about being who they're meant to be now. <laughs> I love it. Well, that's... Yeah, but you, so you don't plan for the future at all? No, but, uh, well, yeah, I mean, we, we're taught that you're going to have to hold that one, Rachel. Sorry, no, I was just... I'm concerned. Okay, okay. okay no, well, the... I really, I mean, I... We're, we're, we're tired. I'll, I'll just say that, I mean, I, I don't really want people to plan for career. I think that's kind of enslaving, trapping someone to a certain vocational path. But right? failure to plan is to plan to fail. Haven't you I, heard that, Fergus? Probably, but I don't really care about it. I mean, yeah, okay, so... So, so this, stay with but us. I this mean, is the stateless. We've got, we got to go to break. <laughs> Sorry. This is the stateless man on the Overseas Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sailless Man. We have some questions pending from the previous segment. <laughs> we're also spe- we're speaking with Dana Martin, author of uh, "Radical Unschooling." I think it was a "Revolution Has Begun" as a subtitle, and she's just finished a conference on the matter of unschooling. We're basically getting down to the details of what that is, and then how you actually apply that. And I think Rachel's concern was that many things in life. Uh, particularly entering professions require a sustained uh, effort of a long or period of planning rather but than for just example if you want to be a doctor i think a lot of the goal the goals of uh today's parents and education is so that your child is able to do whatever they want in life they the path is open to them mm-hmm. and for example if they choose to be a doctor or a veterinarian or a dentist or one of these types of professions that education allows them to to prepare themselves in that direction and when you say something like that you're very present minded to me that sort of conflicts with those goals that a lot of parents have what do you say to that maybe you want to clarify for people to better understand how you say present minded or like yeah. acting in the in the present rather than always sort of thinking of the future well, I, my, my children aren't waiting to live till adulthood and they get out of a certain age you know till they get out of childhood they live now mm-hmm. fully and whole yeah. so that's really different i think than most people live everything is so future based for children in schools and mm. also just as a culture we always say that success is the key to happiness meaning that someday you'll be happy once you reach this level of success where Unschooling really takes flips it around and says, no, happiness is the key to success. So my children are entrepreneurs and have businesses now. And the key to unschooling is really about learning being based in internal motivation. You can't force somebody to learn something. You can force children to jump through hoops and memorize something, but memorization is not true learning. So there are unschoolers that the unschooling parents we had at the conference and the kids that are pursuing their own interests, you can, if my child wanted to be a doctor, they would very easily and powerfully and passionately pursue that through internal motivation, and I would fully facilitate that. So um, I, I think maybe you misunderstood where I was coming from because um, unschoolers are all different professions. Well, I, I just, I just don't see those. They're or groomed to work for somebody else, though. That's, it's really different. When you have a child in the school, they're really conditioned to be yes-men and to, to work for somebody else and slip into the system of a cubicle or, or taking orders all day Sometimes. where unschoolers are generally yeah. entrepreneurs and they have their own businesses and they love what they do with their lives. I mean, I was reading a study recently that said 70% of people are very unhappy in their jobs. It's because they've huh. been conditioned to to be in that state of unhappiness through being in school. So, um, yeah, happiness is a big part of this. 
I, I just don't see those two concepts as, as mutually exclusive being, uh, present minded, um, and versus future minded. I think you can do both at the same time. I think you can enjoy the present, but I think you can also prepare for the future. Well, yeah. And would you, how do you think, like, I'm just curious where you're coming from because I'm not really understanding what you're saying when you say that, uh, that we're, that we're not future minded. Like, how would you see us unschoolers not doing that? Well, th- I mean, that, that's what I'm trying to find out is, is what does that mean to you? For example, um, if your child decided they wanted to be a doctor, are they going to have the necessary diploma and, um, I guess, study skills to be able to well, let, do let, that? Let, let me put it another way, actually, Diana, because this is something that uh, concerns me greatly that, and you, I'm sure you're aware of this, that people now in, in conventional schools are basically studying not to actually learn but to pass tests. And I, I don't really care about tests. I care about life. But for whatever reason, you know, unfortunately, those tests uh, matter when it comes to getting accepted into professional uh, schools, for example. Yeah, completely, and I and I totally value that. There's so many unschoolers that have never gone to traditional school and just go and take their SATs and, and pass with flying colors because you can study for that test. So um, there's been studies that show a child, uh, a 17-year-old, actually can learn an entire school career of math in, in under two months because their brains are ready and they want to learn it and they absorb it all. So so much of school is focused on busy work, and, and to think that it's necessary to go through all of that for 12 years is one of the biggest myths no. in our culture. So, well, What about a yeah. diploma? Well, what about a high school diploma? Yeah, kids can go for that, sure. I mean, unschoolers can wait until they get to that point and do a lot of, um, they could take the GED. and right. Some colleges don't like GEDs. GEDs have a, a nasty reputation in, in, in some uh, do universities. Do they? I don't know about that. I mean, yeah, but, I, I, I've, I've heard of one on... I, I I know of one homeschooler that had she had to get a GED and she can't get into college because no one likes her GED. They you know they they think that means that you dropped out and and it's it's for whatever reason right or wrong it's got that connotation. Really, oh, I have to disagree yeah. so strongly. These are businesses. Colleges are businesses. They want your money. Sure. And they love unschoolers. They love self motivated learners. Everybody else's portfolio looks the exact same. They look cookie cutter. When an unschooler comes in and says they want to be there, they want to learn, they show all, their, all they've learned in life in unique ways, colleges are hungry for this type of learner. So uh, there's never right. been an unschooler that I've known that has not gone yeah. to college that has wanted to. Let me, let me uh, add a few points. I'll say, Dana, that I look back on my years in uh, you know, conventional schooling as really like an emptiness. And one, I only spent one year doing homeschooling, and I actually wrote an article today about they are the books that have most impacted my life, and not one of the books came from any of my conventional schooling. So I'm very sympathetic to your angle. How can one actually sort of practically enter this community? Because one of the concerns we've had, I think, in the past is that you're kind of like going it alone. But I, my, my hope is that you could say alternative education is building a community, of, a supportive community to help you along this process. Do you want to talk about sort of like the evolution of this um, unschooling community? Yeah, I mean, I think unschooling or unschoolers have kind of a reputation maybe of being lazy or hands-off because of the name. The people don't really understand truly what it is. It takes a lot of research on the parents' part to really educate themselves about this, and it really comes down to people always forget the fact that children should have basic human rights. They should have the rights of their own mind of what they're learning and how they're coming into it. So I I understand the fears and the comments of um, the other person on this call. What is her name? Sure. Sorry. Uh, Rachel, Rachel Mills. Sorry. She's uh, co-hosting today. Yeah, yeah. So I totally value what you're saying, and, and I understand. However, it really comes down to what the child wants. And, and if they, my child wanted to 
for the right education as far as being a doctor or lawyer. None of them do at this point. But if they did, I would fully facilitate that. And I have no doubt in my mind that that they wouldn't learn it easily and, and to the best of their ability. Um, as far as community, this is the leading. Unschoolers are really on the leading edge of thought in education and parenting. It really is an evolved approach, but it's new. And the last statistic I knew was about 1% of homeschoolers are unschoolers. I don't know if that's grown, um, and I'm not sure um, how to find out those numbers. I'd say about 50% of unschools are probably underground. So um, a lot of people don't report to their state, both homeschoolers and unschoolers. Um, Do you know what the risk of doing that? Because I've I've heard about, you could say, gray or black market homeschooling, or you could say that includes unschooling. What sort of risk do you really face? I mean, how many people actually face consequences for doing that? Um, I'm not really sure. I've never known anyone to deal with that personally. I think it's a lot of other countries. Like I know Germany right now, somebody's being persecuted um, right. for for homeschooling. It's mm. illegal in that country, but I mean, there's pretty so many well known loopholes. case. Yeah, yeah right. so many different loopholes, and um, the, the communities are growing more and more. There's conferences all over the country for unschooling, and it's, unschooling is really just a method of homeschooling. So you don't need to tell your state you're unschooling. You just say you're homeschooling, and you find a unschooling-friendly evaluator that can translate all of your children's life experience into schoolies, we call it, and they break mm-hmm. it down into subjects. And um, our children are learning just as much as any child in school, except it's a perfectly individualized education based on who they are, because I, I truly don't believe that we're all meant to learn the same thing in life, and it's really unrealistic to expect every single human child to, to succeed in the same curriculum and the same goals. So this is an entirely different way to look at children and the respect they deserve. Right. Well, this Dana, this is the Overseas Radio Network, and I'm, I'm unfortunately I've not read your book. I mean, I have it right here, and I just posted it on the Facebook page. But you know, the title is Radical Schooling, A Revolution Has Begun. Have you brought expatriation or living internationally into, you could say, the curriculum, or you could say brought that into the learning environment of your children? I mean, not necessarily. However, we've traveled all over the world speaking about unschooling. So I was mm. at the, I spoke at the first ever unschooling conference in London. I was the keynote speaker and also in Australia for three years in a row. So this is not just an American phenomenon. This is, oh, my goodness, it's Brazil. At my conference, we had somebody from Peru, an unschooling family, Guatemala, all over the world. This is taking hold. So it's really right. happening fast. But as far as, are you asking me if, if I encourage people yeah, to live overseas? Yeah, because but that, that's that's one of the advantages that I, that's what one thing that attracts me to this sort of approach, that if you were just a more of an internationally minded person, this would better, more easily perhaps to be, be that facilitation that you refer to. Oh, f- yeah, totally. I mean, I love the freedom that we don't have to report to an institution and we can travel. Our kids have learned so much from traveling all over the world, more than ever sitting in a brick building all day at a desk, looking at pictures of different countries and books. I mean... Yeah, it's, it's a much more right. expensive free life. Are there any metrics available as far as outcomes for yeah. homeschooling versus unschooling? Is there any kind of measure of outcomes? Do you yeah, mean do like we... grades? Like, yeah, I mean, you, basically, has, there, has there been any more, yeah, I guess we want to, yeah, I guess Rachel's pointing to the point, like, we'd love to see, is there actual, you could say, cause scholarly research as to the outcomes of this, of this different approach. I mean, it's I'm not, an it's outcomes not, person. Yes, it's, not, it's not a random sample. I guess it makes it very hard to judge. But it just, And it just depends on what you value. I mean, honestly, unschoolers, we value happiness and contentment and freedom. So how do you measure that? You cannot. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> you can't. Yeah. You, you can't know if it's going to work for you then. There's actually a wonderful book on that topic. Some of our discontent about how the best things in life are immeasurable. 
But we, we're, I mean, I was hoping we could get on to your second book too, but we're not going to be able to do that. We only have about a minute to play with. So I'll just, I'll just say that the website is DanaMartin.com and Dana with a D-A-Y-N-A Martin.com. And the book is Radical, Radical Unschooling, A Revolution Has Begun. So, uh, Dana, well, maybe I'll so have you on. Thank you for having me on. I'm happy to come back on any time and elaborate more. It's such a hard concept and philosophy to, to break down in such a short amount of time. So I'm, I'm really happy to come back on and expound more on it. That sounds great. I'll be, I'll be in touch because I'll, I'll, I'll look to include that. But yeah, thanks again for your time. Thank uh, you. Otherwise, I appreciate it. Right on. So, Rachel, I know this, yeah, this, uh, I, I appreciate your passion. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> yeah. On yeah. this issue. Right. Well, um, and, and I'm, I'm friendly to the idea of, of, of homeschooling. Right. And, well, and we I'm, both are. I mean, we're a friendly audience for and this. And I, topic. I was homeschooled for a year as well. Um, I just know that, it doesn't work for everybody, and and if you're looking at a picture that shows that it's working for everybody and it's working beautifully, you're, you're not looking very deep. Right. Is is what my experience and 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 my instinct is telling me. There there are people that it does not work for, and yeah. right, very good. Okay, well we are right up hard against the end of the show, but it's been a pleasure as always, and I'm really glad to have Rachel back on. Thank so, you. This is the Stateless Man. Come back next week. Never see the network. China's Great Wall to the Leaning Tower of Pisa. This is the Overseas Radio Network.